week uh, I spoke and we looked at the value of the Christian veteran. You know, there's someone uh, that's followed Jesus for decades and decades and how important they were to our congregation. We looked at how anxiety sometimes uh, can have that element of pride in it where everything rests on us and that, uh, uh, that pride is unhelpful and anxiety is unnecessary and that we need to uh, put our cares on uh, God. And uh, finally, we looked at the fact that our adversary, the devil, uh, prowls around like a lion. And uh, that means he's merciless and cunning. He isn't sort of polite uh, and he doesn't say please and thank you. Uh, and and he's, a, a, he's, he's a fearsome adversary, uh, especially um, if you don't know uh, Jesus. And I just want to say thank you to those that gave me some positive feedback. People may think that I'm just lavish with praise all the time or that I don't deserve it, uh, but I appreciate the sort of messages uh, uh, that I got. Um, it's really difficult to preach uh, when everyone's got masks on. I've got no idea what the congregation thinks. They could be smiling happily, uh, they could be uh, um, just sort of mumbling under their breath how they disagree with everything. Um, and then I can't see what's going on in YouTube. So uh, it's nice when uh, uh, I've got a couple of uh, uh, messages and it's sort of uh, encouraging uh, uh, to get that. Um, I've used, used it in a, a sermon of, uh, a while ago, but Sam and I took the kids to Tintagel, uh, which is sort of a village um, in the sort of south west of England and uh, uh, it's a place where they have a castle and the castle's connected with the legend of King Arthur and there is a sort of Merlin's Cove with a, 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 a sort of a, a cave that you can go in and it's fantastic and uh, um, obviously most of the stories are sort of fictitious and flights of fantasy and sort of these dramatic embellishments, maybe on the kernel of historical truth in one or two moments. Uh, but I still love the fact that you can walk um, on that uh, on the on the cliff tops in the castle and in the cove, where maybe the origins of this story, where maybe someone who has identified as Merlin now walked, or someone identified as King Arthur uh, went and. Um, love that and this romanticism in me means that also there is another place that i hope to take my family one day we hope to go to the forest of sherwood now uh i probably don't need to explain to you any further why i would want to go uh, with my family to sherwood i must be i am not the only one if all the media uh, is to be believed uh, that is fascinated by the mysterious character in folklore who is clad in green, who wields a bow and arrow uh, and who robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Um, it seems that the sort of earliest uh, um, sort of references, maybe some 16th century poems, uh, Cambridge University have got those uh, and uh, uh, they're sort of references to someone that we might identify today as Robin Hood. Uh, but possibly the biggest influence on this story is the, uh, the, the fictional writing of Salter Scott. Um, he's probably the one that's contributed most to Robin Hood's legacy today. Um, now it's not a book entirely about him, it's a, uh, it's a sort of Robin Hood appears in this story called Ivanhoe. 
Uh, in Ivanhoe, there's the rightful king, Richard the Lionheart. Sounds like a good guy already, doesn't he? Lionheart. Um, and so he goes out on, um, goes out, uh, on the Crusades and then on his way back gets captured in Austria uh, by someone and uh, they're not too sure whether he's still in captivity or released. And so there is a pretender to the throne. Uh, even if you've only watched the, uh, the Disney one with the fox, you'll know uh, that it's Prince John who sort of uh, um, takes the, the place of King Richard. Um, and he isn't a very good ruler um, and he messes up a few times. Uh, but in Ivanhoe, uh, we find Robin of Loxley defying this pretender, this Prince John. Um, and he wins some archery contests, he rescues some prisoners, and uh, redistributes a bit of wealth as well. So you can see the kernels of uh, uh, some of the modern day retellings of this story. And uh, I think the best moment in the book is when you find out the true identity of one of Robin of Loxley's allies. So he's, he's got this uh, ally called the Black Knight um, and they're talking uh, uh, after a, a, a particular success and then the Black Knight reveals his identity. Um, I may mumble over my words, I'm trying to take some perhaps some antiquated English and, and make it a little bit more exciting and contemporary. Um, so it's this. You have an English heart, Loxley, said the Black Knight. And well do you judge, you are more bound to obey my commands, for I am Richard of England. And there's a gasp in the audience. If you're reading this, this is very dramatic. This is uh, uh, something you didn't expect. It's like that moment in Scooby-Doo when you pull the mask down and it's the janitor that's been guilty. Well, they've, uh, the Black Knight reveals that he is Richard of Lionheart. At these words, pronounced in a tone of majesty, uh, the yeoman, uh, for he's, he's not like highborn in this, he's, he's just like a, a workman, uh, uh, the yeoman at once kneeled down before him and at the same time tended his allegiance and implored pardons for, for their offences. Rise, my friends, says Richard, in a gracious tone, looking on them with a countenance in which his habitual good humour had already conquered the blaze of hasty resentment and whose features retained no mark of the late desperate conflict. So they just sort of escaped out of a skirmish. Um, Arise, he said, my friends. Your misdemeanours, whether in forest or field, have been atoned by the loyal services you rendered my distressed subjects before the walls of Torquilstone. So this is where he rescued someone from. And the rescue you have this day afforded to your sovereign. Arise, my liegemen, and be good subjects in future. You are brave, Loxley. And then Robin Hood replied, Call me no longer Loxley, my liege, but know me under a name which I fear fame hath blown too widely not to have reached your royal ears. I am Robin Hood of Sherwood Forest. King of outlaws, the prince of good fellows, says the king. Who hath not heard a name that has been born as far as Palestine? Be assured, brave outlaw, that no deed done in your absence um, and in the turbulent times to which it has given rise shall be remembered to thy disadvantage. Um, and amongst all that wordiness, uh, basically you have King Richard the Lionheart blessing Robin Hood for all his acts of outlawism because it was done 
uh, uh, in sort of remembrance of his reign and that Prince John was this sort of uh, cowardly pretender. Um, and uh, so we suddenly find that this rule restored of the king that Robin Hood remembered. And this outlaw, this person that ran for his lives, that was chased down uh, uh, by his foes, he's lifted up. This king celebrates him and says, you know what, under Prince John's reign you are a criminal, but in actual fact you serve the true kingdom. And uh, it's told again and again in different guises in, in the modern uh, Robin Hood stories uh, that you will see out there. And there was an emotion and gravity and humour to this scene which I really enjoy. And I think it's one of the best ways to prepare you uh, for the ending of 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 10. It says this, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's writing to these churches and they're littered around the Black Sea and they're suffering persecution because they are following their Lord. They're following Jesus of Nazareth. And why are they persecuted? Well, you have this spiritual reality that Jesus is not present on the earth. He's not a king that you can point to. And so everyone else is following the kind of equivalent of Prince John. They're following Lord Satan. He has set himself up as the ruler of this land while uh, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Now the devil is neither stronger nor more legitimate than the Lord he replaces. But he seems to have the upper hand. It looks superficially like that Lord Satan has kind of got control of things. And he encourages stuff that is opposite to the true king's rule. He encourages people's basest instinct. He tells them to follow just whatever your heart desires. He encourages them to just do whatever they want. He encourages them not to pay homage to the king of yesterday, to not uh, um, to, to be their own lord and master. And he permits every blasphemy and nothing is out of bounds. And this is this pretender to the throne who is in charge. And when you live under this Lord Satan's rule, Christians are irritating. People who follow the way of life are kind of get under your skin because they remind you that there is a proper rule out there that will reassert itself and they don't like it and so they come against them. For the Christians then in the uh, uh, first century and in the now, it can feel like the pressure of these people living under Lord Satan's rule is too much. Uh, it's not completely true, but there are all, thing, all sorts of things seen in the media 
and taught in schools and proposed by government that are more Lord Satan than Lord Jesus. And we can feel like perhaps we're out of sync with reality. Perhaps we're out of sync with the true way things are. Perhaps the, world, um, the way the world thinks is how we should think too, because that is the dominant reign. Lord Satan is kind of uh, on his throne over the, uh, over the rulers of the earth. And it can feel too much. And Christians all the time retreat and give up and say, you know what, I can't do this. Perhaps this rule that you say is Satan, perhaps that is the only way forward. That is the only way to cope. It's too much to be good, to be moral, to be uh, gracious, to be forgiving. As we cling on, Peter's words stick, hopefully. He says, and I paraphrase, hang in there brother and sister, your king's coming back. You think this other king that's a pretender to the throne, he's going to win, but he's not. The king that you pay homage to, that you call Lord, he is coming back and uh, you need to stick in there for him. And he reminds us, this gentle pastoral voice, he reminds us that the God of all grace, it's him that called you to this eternal glory in Christ. And he will restore, establish, strengthen and support you. You're suffering a little while. He concedes that things are not peachy for Christians. But the God of grace is your Lord. He has called you to this path. For eternal glory, the stakes are a lot higher than your temporal comfort in the here and now. You have this eternal perspective that those that live under Satan's rule don't. God loves you too much. He is too powerful to abandon you. No matter how much the um, enemy of the, air, uh, of the air seems to crow and gloat that you are not winning, that you do not look victorious, that somehow all this power in Christ seems to him a damp squib, and it's the selfish, it is the immoral, it is the people that don't pay homage to Christ that are the winners. There is no situation which we believers can sink that our Heavenly Father doesn't reach down and rescue us. In the fullness of time, everyone will be pulled out of the situation therein. The rightful king, he is going to return. He's not in charge now, fully. And he will remember, and I really like this, perhaps this is the anarchist in me. He will remember every subversive activity you've got up to. He will remember every prisoner that you helped rescue. He will remember every time you rose to the challenge. He will remember every moment that you love the poor, the needy, the unlovable. He will remember every time the entitled braggart, the person who has um, 
uh, sailed up the ranks in Lord Satan rule. Every time you've challenged them, uh, Jesus will remember that. Every revolutionary act of humility, because that's not the way of the world. Every revolutionary act of kindness, of compassion, that seems to have been wasted. I don't know whether you've noticed, sometimes you can do good and then you're looking for some sort of eternal lasting consequence of it and it seems to be a blip in that person's life. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Every moment that you do something revolutionary, everything, every moment that you fight against the usurper's reign is a moment of beauty, it is a moment of my kingdom. It's not wasted. Whatever it looks like, whatever you feel like, you do not see the full consequences of it. And do you know what? At the end of things, when our King finally comes, when Jesus takes his throne, when Lord Satan is booted into the eternal fire, your conquests will be gloriously recited. Those moments where you gave a cup of cold water to the parched, those moments where you were generous to the people that had nothing. That moment when you replied kindly to a voice of anger or accusation. Jesus goes, that is my rule. And that is going to last forever. So have you attended a church meeting when it was hard or difficult or awkward? Have you given to the point where it hurt? Have you prayed when everything seemed lost and it seemed to be an exercise in pointlessness? Have you answered lies with gentleness? Have you worshipped even when you have grieved? Have you chosen truth over falsehood even though it was inconvenient? Have you championed goodness? Those are your moments of revolutionary acts that Jesus will celebrate and lift up and say, those are the signs of my kingdom. Those are the moments that the people that are under Lord Satan's rule should have been uh, uh, stuck in their tracks by. King Jesus, perhaps not coincidentally, I think, like Richard the Lionheart, will smile broadly at your reunion with him and say, the world thought you were an outlaw, but you are really my ally. You are the Robin Hoods of the 21st century. The rule of the pretender to the throne, it only lasts for a moment. Compared to the everlasting, glorious rule of Jesus. And he is going to lavish honour on those that remembered that he is coming. That weren't uh, deceived into thinking Lord Satan Wall was the only one that was going even when Jesus isn't present, when we pursue his rule, we do a glorious thing. So the, the simple encouragement here is be encouraged, be emboldened. Your king is coming. Amen. He doesn't look like it right now, but he is coming. And he is going to smile broadly at every, every trying time where you lifted up his values rather than Lord Satan's. No act of love is pointless. No embrace of truth will be forgotten. Um, I checked 
And we started reading 1 Peter on the 13th of January 2019. So, sort of just over two years later, with a pandemic in the middle, uh, um, we finish off 1 Peter this morning. And I want to uh, finish with his closing words in his letter. So, uh, let me encourage you read those last uh, uh, words of 1 Peter with me. It says this, with the help of Silas, I wonder if you recognise that name, I wonder if your biblical knowledge is up to that, to where you go, wait a minute, I recognise that. Um, in other, in other uh, translations or uh, uh, other versions it says Silvanus and it's the same thing. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Government guidelines accepted and uh, sort of... Uh, um, ensuring that you keep two metres apart, etc, etc. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The Apostle says, I don't just write these words on my own. It's not my own thoughts merely that I bring to you. They are endorsed by someone called Silas. And hopefully you know something about Silas because his life is indicated to us in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we find he, he is in the church of Jerusalem and we find that he was a great prophet, someone that spoke on God's behalf and encouraged the people. And we find he was a great encourager of people. You would sit down and have a coffee with him and your heart would glow with warmth just because he was the sort of guy that made you feel stronger and rougher and tougher than you thought you were, that you were doing better in the faith than perhaps you thought you were doing, and the prospects of success are a lot higher than you possibly uh, could dream of. This is the same guy that took the letter from Jerusalem to the Gentile believers. They were worried. They thought they had to perhaps follow all the old Jewish routines uh, and rituals. They were worried that perhaps they needed to be more Jewish um, uh, than they were. And the church in Jerusalem just says, guys, relax. You're doing really well. You don't have to go back to all the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices. Just uh, enjoy being Christians. You know, keep your uh, keep uh, uh, the, the truth near to you. Uh, uh, perhaps um, stay away from sexual immorality and uh, uh, sort of uh, particularly uh, sacrificed uh, meat. But goodness gracious, don't go back to that old style. Jesus is with you and the Holy Spirit uh, is our north. And Silas got to bring this gentle letter to the Gentile churches to announce to them, you don't need to go back to the Old Testament. And he was a guy that brought God's grace in all these churches that were worried. 
He was the one that helped Paul lead Timothy in discipleship. He helped Timothy become this man of God. He suffered imprisonment uh, and beatings with Paul. Um, he sung in a dungeon. I always feel there is a, uh, a, a real kudos to someone that is imprisoned for their faith and in the darkest, dankest places where the Geneva uh, human rights rules don't really apply and he can sing uh, Delirious or Matt Redman or Wren Collective. I kind of feel that is a hero of the faith worth appreciating and there he is singing in the dungeons. He is rescued miraculously by an earthquake and he preaches in famous places like Corinth. So he'd seen this church in Corinth where he preached blockbusting sermons and then seen them gone completely the other way. Okay, completely forgotten or ignored or overridden the wise advice he'd, he'd given. This is a guy with all sorts of credentials that we can admire. He was a fine friend to the Apostle Paul and it was obvious he was a blessing to Peter as well. And he endorses Peter's letter. He goes, yeah, this is right. You need to listen to it. Um, and the message of 1 Peter is you need to discover God's grace in troubled times. If you are under the cosh for your faith, it is there that you will find God's grace. You may not like it, you may not want it, but this is a factual heavenly perspective. In a world full of fallen pastors and corrupt church leaders, and we have a church history, even recently, full of moments of mistakes from church leaders. Silas rings out as a, a moment. He has run the race. He has followed Jesus well for all the, the life that is recorded in our text. He is someone that has given us something to aim for. The bar is set high. Jesus is faithful and he has got men on this earth, men and women, that he uh, has called his own and they don't trip. And as Paul reminds us of Silas, he uses this great phrase and uh, um, if we're in different times and you didn't read perhaps just a word of encouragement to get you through the next 24 hours, I might spend a little longer on this. Uh, but he says, uh, there's a lady calling out in Babylon. What on earth does that mean? Um, well, I will try and limit this to a, a, a very small amount of time in this sermon, because probably no one else is as interested in this as I am. But um, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 17. you're hoping to get your end times wall charts out and your complex arrangement of 666 and what the beast looks like and the two witnesses and stuff like that, I'm going to perhaps frustrate you. Revelation 17. Are you ready for a bit of revelation? It says this. Um, even the title. So as a teenager, I couldn't be helped but draw to this. <laughs> Babylon, the prostitute on the beast. Wow, that's a cracking read if there ever was one. So chapter 17, one of the seven angels who were the seven bowls came and said to me, so this is John on the Isle of Patmos, 
Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. It is full-on stuff. There's no tepid Christianity in this pages. Then the angel carried me in the spirit into a desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. You're like, wait a minute. There's a woman in a desert, beast covered in names, seven heads, ten horns. Now is that ten horns on each head? Or is it ten horns over thing? Well, as you kind of process that, I'm just going to rip on. Um, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. So there's, there's this idea of opulence. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Like, yeah, I'm not going to be drinking from that. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. And we've got an amazing tattooist here that's managed to put all this on her forehead. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. That's kind of like an understatement, really. I'm not sure I would, I would have just stopped writing now. There's a lot going on, and uh, uh, I would just sort of give up. But John helplessly ploughs on. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides. So this is an explanation of what on earth is going on with women with tattooed foreheads sitting on seven-head beasts. Um... The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go into its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it, it once was, now is not, and yet will come. You're like, well, that's not much help, is it? I don't know what's going on there. Um, but verse 9 just helps. It says this. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. You're like, well, I don't know. What's that about? Okay, give us a hand. It's crazy imagery, all apocalyptic. And if you look at Daniel and Ezekiel, you might suddenly go, oh, I recognise the uh, uh, way of writing here. And you could be frightened off from Revelation, you go, yeah, I'm not touching that. You know, uh, I'm fascinated. So my book is full of my sort of fingerprints. I often come to it a little bit dirty. And uh, you can see that the like, favourite bits, often like the Apostle Paul stuff. And then so Revelation, it's a little less well thumbed through. And you can avoid it. Or you can be led by the crackpots and wackos that suddenly go, yeah, I've got the key to Revelation. Let me tell you, it's all about Barack Obama or Donald Trump or uh, uh, Biden or it's all about uh, whatever guys currently leading Russia or China. What you need to know is this, Jesus is going to come in 20, 
25 and uh, this is the United Nations and I've heard that a lot. So it's either avoiding revelation or developing this uh, complex arrangement. Uh, if you've ever read the Bible code, we can shove that in there as well. The simple truth in this bit of text is that we have a reference to the city of Rome. Rome, and we, uh, this is not something we need to be familiar with, Rome was founded on seven hills. That is what the beast is, it's Rome. And uh, so on these seven hills by the shore of the Tiber River lies the city of Rome in the first century. And John is talking about the horrors of the city of Rome, its hellish hedonisms, as well as its shameful treatings of the saints. If you've ever seen the Colosseum, it's a great building, but Christians were killed there. It's a place that took delight in completely following Lord Satan rather than Lord Jesus. Now, you might go, well, why didn't just John say that? Okay, we could move with a bit of plain speaking right here. And the thing is, we're talking about Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And it seems that what John has done, he has written it with a slightly flamboyant taste so that people that want to accuse Christians go, you're reading this? And they go, yeah, I'm not sure I even get this. But the Christians would read it and go, yeah, that's talking about Rome, that's talking about you. And it was a way to escape uh, 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 unnecessary persecution and, and be emboldened in your soul. It's kind of uh, 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 code language that Christians go, yeah, I, John, you're talking about Rome and all the evil that's going on there and that that is going to finish soon and Lord Jesus is going to win and I need to hear that because Rome has not been kind to me. And so Babylon is Rome. And that is what Peter's talking about. Because Peter's writing from Babylon. He's writing from Rome. He's saying, you know what, I'm in the middle of this. I am enduring all sorts of pain and persecution. And so it seems that both Paul and Peter are killed in Rome and lots of other uh, uh, impressive Christian leaders are executed there. And it's a place of abomination and uh, the adulteries. And Peter is saying, you'll think you're persecuted. Well, I am being too. I feel your pain. I'm not writing as a, um, as a church leader in my million pound mansion while you're undergoing all sorts of horrors. I'm enduring it too. I'm with you. I'm writing from, this, from a sense of well-earned empathy. And so Peter says, this pain we're going through, we're going through it together, but it's only for a moment, and uh, Lord Jesus is going to come again, and then we're all going to be Robin Hoods, which he's going to celebrate and uh, appreciate. Um, and we're chosen to take this path together. And you know what? And I love this. So Peter's going through all sorts of horrors. These churches in the Black Sea uh, are going through all sorts of horrors. Um, and he finishes with... Make sure love continues. In your churches, make sure love continues. 
The world out there loves Lord Satan and follows his ways, but here, Lord Jesus reigns. You may not naturally get on. You may have different politics, different economic outlooks. You may have all sorts of different ideas about personal hygiene, but you know what? Love each other. There's too much wrong going out there for the church not to enjoy each other's company and greet each other with this holy kiss. This mark of affection that uh, would sort of you do it on the forehead. Like, you know, as, you, uh, as I uh, left my kids this morning, kissed them on the forehead. And, and that was a very common thing in the first century. And that's what Peter is referring to. He says, kiss one another. That affectionate sign of allegiance and alliance. Do that to one another. Today, we're probably talking more about hugs. And what's it, 21st of June? I think probably there'll be a few hugs around um, as we're allowed perhaps a little bit more contact. But love in the church, that's what Pete says at the end. Love each other in the church. Stand firm on these things and love each other in the church. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this letter from Peter. This guy that made all sorts of uh, mess-ups in Jesus' life suddenly becomes, or, uh, uh, suddenly becomes this wise leader of the church and writes this excellent letter to all these churches struggling around the Black Sea. Lord God, I pray that you would help us take on board his words, particularly um, this morning. I pray that we would see ourselves as Robin Hoods, as um, insurrectionists, as people uh, with paying homage to a king that is still to come. And Lord God, I pray uh, that you would help us stand firm in the hard times and that we would be good at greeting one another with a holy kiss, that we would be going good at saying to our brothers and sisters in Jesus, I'm with you, I'm for you, let's do this together. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.